The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, I am really excited and joyful to be able to preach this passage to you this morning. This is a glorious section of Scripture. It speaks of a great joy, of people celebrating, of a sense of victory coming through the victory of Jesus Christ. This passage speaks very plainly of Christ. And it speaks also of the government that he intends to bring. I think in some way, the study of human history for thousands and thousands of years is the study of a fruitless quest of the human race for a righteous form of government and a righteous ruler to lead it. It wasn't found in the ancient Egyptians for all of their achievements. You can still see the pyramids and the effects of the rule of the pharaohs over upper and lower Egypt. It wasn't found there. It wasn't found in the cruel Assyrians who swept in, who invented crucifixion which took our Lord from this world, just through their cruelty, a pile of skulls, the measure of their success, the success of their kingdom, certainly it wasn't found in their cruelty. Nor was it found in the Babylonians, who through the genius of one man, Nebuchadnezzar, were able to build a glorious empire that lasted for just a short time and then sank back down into the dust. It wasn't found there. Nor was it found in the conquerors, of the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians who came along with their wide-reaching empire, or Alexander the Great who sought to take Greek culture and philosophy and literature and language and spread it all over the world. He had a vision for that, trained by the philosophers, never lost a battle, but did not bring in a righteous form of government, as the history after Alexander certainly proved. It certainly wasn't found in the Romans for all of their great achievements, for all of the tens of thousands of roads that they made and all of their great structures for the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and that Roman system of justice and their philosophers, they certainly did not bring in a righteous and lasting form of government in which we can rejoice. And after that darkness, the barbarian tribes sweeping in, hordes from the steppes of Asia had no interest whatsoever in culture and just sought to destroy Establish their own power for a short period of time. Nor was it in Christendom, the kings, the feudal system, all of that. Things were only as good as the character of your king during that era. And that usually wasn't very good. And so they didn't find it in the, in the kings and the nobles and the system of serfs and pages of the Middle Ages. It wasn't found there. The divine right of kings nor has it been found in representative democracy. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people which came in after the Enlightenment wasn't found there. And every four years we listen to the hopes of another political candidate and the utopian language of what it's going to be like if this or that individual or this or that party is elected into power. We Christians ought to know better. Winston Churchill put it this way in 1947, very famously. Democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Typical of Churchill to put it so succinctly. 
It's basically the best we've been able to do. Certainly better than communism, which had its run in the 20th century. Enforced liberality to the poor, but really just a concentration of power in the hands of just a few. The same old thing. Tyranny and corruption. It's the same always. But the righteous king has been found. Amen? He's already walked our earth. 2,000 years ago, he came. He showed us what he was like. He displayed his character. And for 2,000 years, we've been getting a greater and greater sense of what kind of kingdom he's going to bring. And that kingdom is displayed so beautifully in the words of an ancient prophet who lived seven centuries before the king was born. And that's Isaiah. Look at verses 6 and 7 just to get a foretaste of the kind of government that Jesus will bring to us in which we will live and rejoice forever and ever. Put your hope here, friends, not in any political process. Put your hope right here. Listen to these words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen and amen. That is the government we're looking forward to. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm yearning for the government of the King of Kings, of Jesus to come and show us what righteousness really looks like here on earth to establish and uphold it forever. Now the context of this glorious gift, and it is a gift, for to us a son is given. The Father is giving us this kind of a government. He's giving us this kind of a king. Is great darkness. A people who walk in darkness. Any passage that begins with the word nevertheless causes you to look back a little bit. You know, we're starting right in the middle of the story here. Right in the, in the flow of Isaiah's prophecy. And we're caused to look back to the end of chapter 8. To find out the nature of this darkness and gloom into which this light shines. And it's the darkness of ignorance. And of rebellion against the law of God. That's the darkness in which this light shines. Look at it again. Verses 19 through 23 speaks of consulting mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter. Instead of consulting their God, darkness and rebellion, they don't know God. They don't, don't know His laws. They don't know His ways. They're ignorant and they are rebellious. Even if they knew the laws of God, they would not follow them. And so this is a land of darkness. To make it even worse, these are the, the chosen people. These are the Jews, the people of God, the descendants of Abraham. These are the people who are walking in darkness. Faulty spiritual guides who whisper and mutter. Mediums and spiritists. Friends, we have this problem too in our culture. Have you noticed the increased fascination with the occult in America? Have you noticed programs on TV like Ghost Whisperer and Medium that talk about connection with the dead? Always for a good cause, helping law enforcement officials to find the bad guy, this kind of thing. We're being duped. We're being sucked in. Now, we struggle with the same thing. The same ignorance of the law of God. The same rebellion against those laws we do know. And Isaiah 8 says it very plainly. Isaiah asks a simple question and gives a clear command. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, my friends. If they do not speak, 
according to this word, the word of God, they have no light of dawn. They're ignorant of the word of God. And the result is utter rebellion against God and eternal judgment, as we talked about last time. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 8. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And when they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Yet... In the midst of this bleak picture, this gloom and this darkness shines a ray of light so glorious and so brilliant. And his name is Jesus. He is the light of the world and he shines into this darkness. Nevertheless, it says, verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. That land in darkness and gloom now sees a light. Now, the context here, politically, is the humbling, it says, of the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is referring, I believe, to the military oppression under the Assyrians. God was sending the Assyrians from the north, coming down from the north, to invade the northern kingdom of Israel as a punishment for their sins. And during this time, during Isaiah's time, Assyria came, 2 Kings 15:29. It says, in the time of Pekah, son of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. So that's where it came first. That's the beginning of the exile, the beginning of the end, the people of God in the promised land. It's the beginning, I think, what Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles, when the Gentiles will rule over portions of the promised land. And so they deported. It begins with the land of Naphtali, the land of Zebulun, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's why it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Because the Assyrians come down. And not only do they deport the Jews out, but they bring pagans in to settle. This is what they did. They just rearranged peoples. And so the pagans came in there and they mingled with the residual people of God that were left there, the Jews that were left there. They mingled with them. They intermarried with them. And it became Galilee of the Gentiles. Idolatry, and darkness from the ignorance of God and of His Word. They were a people walking in darkness. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's the light that God's given us, that we not walk in darkness but have everlasting light. But I tell you this, physical slavery and depression, even under the Assyrians, is nothing compared to the cruel bondage that we feel under sin. That's the true taskmaster. And I believe behind the political language and the military language of Isaiah 9 is the spiritual language of the release that Jesus has brought us. The release from sin and death, my friends. Jesus said in John 8:34, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It says in Romans 5, just as sin reigned in death. Now there's a tyranny for you. Sin reigning in death. It's vicious and cruel. So Galilee of the Gentiles was humbled by their military domination, by their ignorance of God and by their slavery of sin. That's the past though. In the past. Oh, but in the future, he says, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. He will honor the way of the sea along the Jordan. How is he going to honor? The word literally means to glorify. He will raise them up out of the darkness. And he will honor them 
and he will glorify them. Now, what great honor can come to a land so downtrodden? What can these words mean? Or shall I put it in the language of the New Testament? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come from the northern regions where the, where the Gentiles were? That was, that was Nathaniel's statement when he heard about a, a Messiah, the Son of God, who was coming from Nazareth in Galilee. Can anything good come from that place? That's the place of judgment, the place of darkness. Oh, yes, yeah, something gloriously good can come from there. Jesus can come. And there's a clear prophecy here in Isaiah 9 that the Messiah would come from Galilee of the Gentiles. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. And his name is Jesus. This prophecy got to be forgotten. Even those that study the scriptures diligently did not remember. I'm speaking of the Sanhedrin. They spent their whole time studying the scriptures. At least some of them did. And you remember Nicodemus, how in John chapter 7 stuck up for Jesus and said, can we at least give him a trial before we condemn him? And so he gets a face full of lead just for saying that. John 7, 52, are you from Galilee too? That's an insult, by the way. To us, it's not much of an insult, but that was an insult. Are you from Galilee too? Is that where you come from, Nicodemus? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, they should have looked into it. You can imagine Jesus saying, have you not read in Isaiah 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. They've come walking in darkness and Jesus shines in Galilee of the Gentiles. Here he comes. It's a deeper symbol though. It's the life that all of us faced apart from Christ before we were converted. Let me tell you something. You are surrounded every day by people who are walking in darkness, who live in the land of the shadow of death. An eternal death. The second death. The death in the lake of fire. That hangs over people you live with every day. They're walking in darkness. They're they're dead while they live. Because they're following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. They're under the power of death. They walk in darkness every day. They need the light that we can bear. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they need. It says in 1 John 2.11, Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And only Jesus himself can bring light into that darkness. Jesus said in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think many of you who are listening to me today can testify to that truth. Amen? You have found Jesus to be light in a dark place. Once for all in the salvation of your souls. And day after day after day, he shines his light to you and teaches you the way to go. He is the light of the world. Now, what's the result of that light? The shining of that light. Look at verse 3. Great joy. Verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. As people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Sin's darkness... And the depression that comes from it squelches all joy. It just crushes it. And so people put on a happy face. They celebrate things that don't really matter. They don't have any sense of lasting happiness and joy. Because they haven't found Jesus. They don't know what it's like to be a branch on that living vine. And to have the renewing power of joy day after day. Not that comes from you or that comes from your circumstances. But that comes from the truth of this word. 
that Jesus has crushed death forever and will never be under its dominion again. They don't know it. Westminster Shorter Catechism said, what is the chief end of man? And you know the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You were destined for eternal joy in Christ. You who are believers, that's what you were made for. You were crafted for joy. And you haven't touched one millionth part of it yet. The greatest joy is yet to come. That's what He made you for. The joy of knowing God, of knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the source of this joy is a victory likened to a great military victory. The day of Midian's defeat. What is that referring to? Well, you have to know Old Testament history for this one. Look at verses 4 and 5. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Oh, what a great celebration. What great joy it's referring to. Some of you may be old enough to remember the celebration at the end of World War II. VE Day and VJ Day. The rest of us who are younger, we've read about it. We've seen it in documentaries. There was wild, crazy dancing in the streets. The Nazis were not going to rule the world after all. VE Day. May of 1945. Released from that bondage. Hitler's dead. The Nazi regime is crushed. It's over. But even then, tempered by the fact that there was still a war going on in the Pacific, still ultimate victory hadn't been won. But then in August, VJ Day, and it was all over. World War II was over. And there would be none of that oppression and none of that bondage. Well, like that, like that joy and celebration, so it is this victory that is the foundation of our eternal joy. As in the day of Midian's defeat. Now, what is this referring to? This is coming right out of the book of Judges. You know that book, a strange book in the Old Testament, testifying to the wickedness of the hearts of God's chosen people, the sinfulness of the Jews, how they continually violated God's law or didn't know it, the Levites weren't teaching it. And so there was a constant cycle in that book of rebellion and sin, and God would judge them by giving them over to some, some Gentile enemy. The Gentile enemy would rule for a while, and God would raise up a deliverer, and he would affect some military victory, and then the people for one generation would kind of walk with the Lord. And then the second and third generations, it would devolve again, slide back down into rebellion, and it would start all over again. In the summary verse at the very end in Judges 21:25. in those days, it says, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I'm telling you, all of history can be summed up in this. The search for a righteous government and a king to lead it. And they didn't know the king. And so they rebelled again and again. And so in Judges 6, we learn about Midian. It was Midian's turn to dominate the people of God. It says again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. They're living in caves, not in their fertile fields, in the houses they did not build. And the vineyards they did not plant. They were done with that. They were banished into caves and clefts, strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites invaded their country like locusts and de destroyed all that they'd planted. Ultimately, they cried out to the Lord for help, and he heard their cry. And so he raised up a deliverer, Gideon. 
And the angel of the Lord finds Gideon threshing in a wine press. Not a good place. You want to be up on a kind of a bare spot where the wind sweeps across. He's down in a sunken area trying to hide his grain from the Midianites. It's not a good threshing area, but what can you do when you're under the boot of the oppressor? And so there's Gideon and he's just toiling away. And the angel of the Lord comes and calls him to this role of being deliverer. And he chose from the smallest clan, the weakest family in that small tribe, this deliverer Gideon. He's doing it on purpose. And why? Because God's method in this deliverance is self-exaltation. He's going to deliver the people in such a way that he gets all the glory. He's going to do it through weakness. He's going to do it through frailty and he's going to do it by the enemy imploding on itself and using their own weapons to destroy themselves. That sounds like what Jesus did. As in the day of Midian's defeat. Well, you know the story, how Gideon got the army together. He had to have some some help for his weak spirit. So he puts out the fleece once, and then he puts the fleece out again. And God stoops to his weakness and lifts him up. And then he's got a, a, a dream he overhears in the Midian camp about some barley loaf that rolls down. What a strange dream. But he gets inspired by the rolling barley loaf. It's quite a story, it really is. A picture of weakness and frailty. This is no great military leader. And then he gets the army together and he says, you've got too many men, send them home. No general has ever done that. They're always looking for more recruits. He sends them home, he sends them home, he sends them home until at last he's got 300 men. Ah, the choicest of the brave, right? I don't think so. You've missed the point if that's what you think. They're not going to make a movie about that 300, not at all. These are weak people who don't even bring a weapon to battle. They just stand around the Midian camp with torches and trumpets. And at the signal, they break their, their lanterns and the torches come ablaze and the trumpet sounds and the enemy turns in on itself and just destroys itself till they're dead. To God alone be the glory for that one. To God alone be the glory. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Isaiah is making an analogy here. As in the day of Midian's defeat, so also will be this victory through Jesus Christ. And so he raises up a little baby. Talk more about that in just a moment. A picture of weakness, a picture of frailty. But Jesus in the, in the manger is nowhere near as weak as Jesus up on the cross, seemingly helpless, bleeding and dying. By his frailty, by his weakness, by his death on the cross, destroying the boot of the oppressor, Satan. Destroying the lash of the tyrant, sin, just by dying. As in the day of Midian's defeat. We know what we're talking about here. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's the lash of the oppressor. The wages of sin is death. That's the boot of the tyrant. We can't throw it off. It's too strong for us. We can't defeat death. We need a deliverer. We need deliverance and deliverance will come. Hebrews 2, uh, 14 and 15 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. By dying he destroys the devil. By dying he destroys the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So what does he do? Well, he turns the devil's weapon back on himself. The devil's got in his hand the power of death. Not anymore. Jesus has it now. I hold the keys of hell and death, he says. He won them. How? By dying. 
And so Satan kills Jesus and so, in that way, destroys himself. You've heard of one of David's mighty men that uh, killed this powerful man by snatching the spear from him and killing him with his own spear. That's what Jesus does with Satan. Habakkuk 3, 13 and 14 says, You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. Satan made a bad mistake in killing Jesus, didn't he? He didn't know what to do. He did not know what to do. And so he killed Jesus because that's what he did. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He followed his own nature. And in so doing, he killed himself, as in the day of Midian's defeat. But look at the conqueror, verse 6. Who is this surprising, mighty conqueror? Well, it's a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Surprising connection. A military victory in verses 2 through 5 and a child introduced in verse 6. Similar to Isaiah 7:14, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The message is this, that domination and oppression is conquered by vulnerability and weakness and submission to the will of God. It's conquered by a little baby. But this child is no ordinary child, not at all. There is a mingling here of the natural and the supernatural, even in the titles of Jesus. It doesn't come across so well in the English, but it's very strong in the Hebrew. There's a clear mingling. There's an incarnation here. A child is born, that's human, but he's called mighty God. Now that's divine. So we have a mingling. We have the incarnation right here in these verses. That the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That Word who is God made His dwelling among us. Look at these titles. We have a divine aspect and a human aspect. Look at the first one. Wonderful Counselor. Let me shift it a bit. Miracle Counselor. How about that one? Because that's a valid translation. A Counselor who does miracles. Supernatural power then. The second one. Mighty God. The word El Gibor. Gibor just means a warrior. But the word El, now that means God. Talk more about these, all of these in a moment. But I'm just going across and I'm showing you the mingling of the titles. Everlasting Father. Now all of us has a Father. But there's only one eternal Father. Everlasting Father. You see the mingling of the, of the human and the divine. And then the Prince of Peace. The word prince is just ordinary government official. It's used many, many times. But this word peace, the more you study it, the more you realize only God can give that. (laughs) Shalom. True peace. There's a mingling here of the divine and the human. So we first have a miracle counselor. A counselor who's going to work miracles. He gives good advice. You ought to follow it. By the way, is there any difference between Jesus' advice and his commands? I think not. Any difference between his commands and his promises for us as Christians? I think not. It's all the same. He intends to do us good. Whatever he commands is a promise he's going to work in in us. And so also his advice. He's the wonderful counselor. He gives wonderful advice. And my sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. But he does miracles, signs and wonders. Secondly, mighty God, El Gabor. Now, a warrior is what we need to win a victory. Jesus is a warrior. There's never been any more powerful. You want to read about a military victory, unlike there has ever been in history. It just hasn't happened yet. Read Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back before the armies of heaven. And everyone dies by the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. That's the kind of warrior he is. Oh, he's a dreadful enemy, but a marvelous savior. But the first one, El Gibor, mighty God. 
Now that's a word reserved in Isaiah's prophecy only for Almighty God. Isaiah 44, 6. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last. Listen to this. Apart from me, there is no God. Same word, L. There's no God apart from me. Isaiah 44, 8. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. He's saying there's no other God. Why is he saying this to Israel? Because they were syncretistic. They were mixing religions together. Yahweh, yes, but so also Baal and Ashtoreth and all the others. He's saying, no, there are no other gods. In effect, he's saying, I've studied my universe. I made it. I know. I've looked top to bottom, front to back, left to right, north, south, east and west. There is no other God. I know not one. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Do you get it? It's very, very plain. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Oh, this is a title reserved in the book of Isaiah only for Almighty God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And yet it's ascribed to the child that's born. He will be called Mighty God. The deity of Christ established plainly. And then eternal father. Father, of course, implies an intimate, caring relationship to his people. Isaiah 40, verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers them close to his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. He is the good shepherd. He is a tender father, as a father should be. Caring for us, yes, but that word everlasting, now that's eternal. Eternal father. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, listen to this, whose origins are from old, from the days of eternity. The one born in Bethlehem is coming from eternity past to enter into time. He steps into time at Bethlehem, but he's of eternal origins. And so he says on, uh, during his trial before Pontius Pilate, Pilate says, so you're a king. Jesus always told the truth. You're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I entered the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That is eternity speaking there, friends. That is eternity speaking. Not one of us who draws breath today chose to enter this world. None of us. There was a stab of blinding light to your up-to-that-moment blind eyes, and there was some pain, and there was air in your lungs, and you were alive. And it's been interesting ever since. But you didn't make any choice there, not at all. But Jesus did. He chose to take on a human body. He is the everlasting Father. And He is the Prince of Peace. Prince is a natural word in Isaiah. Uh, like this, for example, Isaiah 1.23, your rulers, same Hebrew word, your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. How's that sound? Or, or this one, speaking of e Egypt's uh, rulers, the officials of Zone are nothing but fools. <laughs> so that's what we get. Those are our princes. Companions of thieves and fools, that is not good when government is run by companions of thieves and fools. But Jesus is not that way. He is a prince, yes, but he's the prince of peace, He's a prince who brings eternal peace, divine peace.
You've already heard this, Isaiah 2.4. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The peace that Jesus brings is an eternal peace. It is a peace that goes up vertically with God and a peace that extends horizontally with all people. And it was testified to by the angel who announces birth, Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That peace. Or this one, John 14.27, Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. That's the peace that he comes to bring. Do you know that peace today? Do you understand the peace that only Jesus can give? A peace that says in Philippians that transcends all understanding. A peace that settles into your heart and navigates you through whatever God chooses providentially to bring in your life. Do you know that peace? Jesus is the prince, the king of that peace. And ultimately, that peace is with God. That's the basis of all the other experiences of peaceful feelings that we have. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the nature of our King. He is the wonderful Counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. And He is the Prince of Peace. That's what He's like. What's His kingdom like? Well, that's what we're talking about. In verse 6, it says, The government will be on His shoulders. Can we write him in at the presidential election this year? Can we do that? I don't know that it'll get us far. He's got his own timetable. You know, in John 6, they tried to take him by force and make him king. I think if he got elected, he would not serve at this present time, unless that was his purpose. But he is the king. And the government's going to rest on his shoulders because he's fit for it. God chose him for this role. The wonderful counsel and mighty God is a perfect blend of wisdom and power. And that's what we need, don't we? We need a king who is wise and a king who is powerful. Now, a king who is powerful and not wise, that's called a tyrant. We've seen plenty of those. A king who is very wise but doesn't have power, I think that's a philosopher. <laughs> that's really not a king. We need somebody who's going to be wise and powerful, and that is Jesus. He is the one on whom the government is going to rest. Now look at the nature of his kingdom. It says of the wealth of his kingdom, increase and peace, there will be no end. His kingdom is characterized by increase. It's going to get bigger and bigger and grander and more and more glorious. For how long? Well, forever. Now, hang on to that thought because that'll blow the circuits in your brain. I'm going to try to blow them in a minute. But I just want to talk about the increase of his kingdom from the time he entered until now. There's been an increase in this world. As more and more people from every tribe and language and people and nation have been hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, have repented of their sins, have trusted in him and have found forgiveness. And I prayed this morning and I'll pray again that somebody who's listening to me today who's in, in darkness because they've never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, will today receive forgiveness through faith in His name. If you're a believer in Christ, pray for that person right now. That they would repent and that they would look to Jesus, that they would turn to Christ and be saved. And guess what? His kingdom will increase a little bit more. As another person gets saved, another person repents and believes in Jesus. Oh, trust in Him. 
And so the kingdom just keeps on increasing until there is a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe and language and people and nation standing around the throne dressed in white robes and saying salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne. Until that happens, the kingdom is just going to keep on increasing. But it's going to be a secret increase. It's going to be a hidden increase. For the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid in a large amount of flour until it worked all through the, through the dough. It just keeps permeating and nobody really notices except Christians who care about unreached people groups and who are evangelizing their neighbors and praying for this very thing. As we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, we want his kingdom to increase. Yearning for it. It's going to keep on growing. That's increased now in history. It also increases every time you learn something new as a Christian. Every time you learn something new about God and about Christ. His kingdom gets a little bit greater. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. Let's make Christ greater. Let's speak Scripture to each other. Let's think great thoughts of Jesus and expand each other's love for Christ. And His kingdom will keep on increasing. Yeah, but that just takes us to the end of time. That's not enough for Jesus. That just takes us to the end of history. Is his kingdom going to increase after he has established the eternal kingdom? Will it keep on increasing there? Well, it says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be what? No end. Well, this is where I started meditating. I said, well, no, listen. Is it going to keep on getting greater and greater up there in heaven? A new heaven and a new earth. For the longest time, I had a very static view of heaven. I've talked about this before. But it really characterized me for most of my first 20 years of being a Christian. You died, uh, you saw Christ, you were transformed, 1 John 3, uh, we will see him as he is and we're just transformed, we're made holy, resurrection happens, we're conformed to him, and we get, in the modern 21st century language, an instant download. It's not that, you know, 0 to 100%, you know, the slow thing when you have the old landline kind of thing. No, it's going to be, boom, 100%. You get instant knowledge. You will know him as fully as he has known you. And then forever, you will rejoice in that instant knowledge you received. And you'll just, we'll all be kind of around the throne, learning nothing, mind you, but just celebrating forever these things we have come perfectly to know. Kind of like a picture that never moves. Perfect picture, but it just never moves. That is not what we're heading. That's not where we're going. Of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. Well, how does that work? At the resurrection, they'll neither marry nor be given a marriage. No babies, as far as I can tell. No new people. No need for evangelism. They're all there. The elect have all been saved. There's nothing left of that. How then will his kingdom keep on increasing? Well, you're going to start to get to know some incredible people up there in heaven. Let's start there. Let's say, for example, you sit down up there in heaven and you talk to an Nestorian Christian who took the gospel to China in 635 A.D. Talk to him about his life. Let him share with you his testimony. How it is he shared the gospel there in the Tang dynasty in China and how he, he won Chinese uh, to faith in Christ at that, uh, at that era of history. But imagine a three-way conversation and Jesus is sitting with the two of you and he's filling in the spiritual details of what he did through angels and by his power and through the Holy Spirit to make all that happen. And his mind's getting blown, the Nestorian Christian, and yours is too. And Jesus is downloading more and more and you find out just from that one individual what God did through that person. 
Or maybe a Japanese martyr who died in 1597 during the shogunate of Hideyoshi. And they, and they would not yield and they died hideously for their faith, 1597. And again, a three-way conversation. And you and that Japanese martyr. And you're learning from Jesus all that he did to sustain that person right through the martyrdom. And then Jesus filling in what he did because the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church. And how he took it from there. And just caused the gospel to advance. And that's just two people you've talked to. And meanwhile, you're gazing at the throne. You're focused on God. You're learning more about His glory and His power. There's a new earth to be explored. It's radiant and perfect. And the, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You're going to be learning forever. But the great thing is, you're never going to forget anything you've learned. You're just going to keep on learning and learning. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end forever and ever. We will be there. I can't wait. I'd like to go there today. But in the meantime, there's still some work to be done, isn't there? There's still some things to be done. David's throne, Jesus will reign there. It's a prophetic kingdom. It is predicted that he will reign on it, but he isn't, it's not finished yet. All the elect haven't been saved. Not every tribe and language and people and nation has heard the gospel yet. He's going to establish and uphold it forever. It's a secure kingdom. There's no sliding back with Jesus' kingdom. It always keeps growing. But there's work to be done. It's a holy kingdom of justice and righteousness. But there's still things we need to do. We have a role to play. And what is our power source? It says it right there. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen and amen. A picture of it's the sun. Fusion. Burning and burning and burning and never decreasing. Just burning the zeal of God Almighty for His only begotten Son. Sit at my right hand, He has said, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Oh, we need fear nothing except failing the Lord in this hour of need. This is the time for us to step forward. This is the time for us to advance the kingdom to some people who don't know him at all, who are still walking in darkness. We have a labor to do. Now, one of the ways that we want to get involved in this is hope for Durham. This summer, uh, we get to go on a mission trip without ever leaving the home. We don't, we don't have to get on an airplane. You don't need to get your passport. All right? That's always exciting when you mail your passport and then you wait and wait. It always comes like within 30 hours right before you have to get on the plane. That's a little too exciting. You don't need a passport for this. We're going to downtown Durham. And what I'm urging you to do, I'm telling you this right now, His kingdom will not advance in this present time without sacrifice on the part of God's people. Amen? If we are not willing to lay down anything, we will not be involved. Now... In the words of Mordecai, salvation will come from another way. He's going to get it done. But will we be included? Will this church be part of it? And I've asked Matthew, come on up, Matthew, to talk some more about Hope for Durham. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask you to sacrifice a Saturday. Not even the whole Saturday. You can mow your lawn later in the afternoon. I know it'll be a little bit hotter later in the afternoon, but you can do that. You can, get, you can do your Walmart shopping later in the afternoon. But just one morning... We're going to try to serve here in Durham. Matthew, come and tell us how. Thank you. Hope for Durham. Uh, it's going to be July 12th, from 7 in the morning to 12 in the afternoon. Uh, FBC has committed to serve in two ways. Uh, what Hope for Durham is, it is a week-long uh, project in which churches 
in downtown Durham seek to give back to the community. And uh, we're looking to be a part of that, uh, to be a strong part of that, to reach the community with the gospel. Uh, the first project that we have committed to is Habitat for Humanity. We're going to assist in the building of a house. Now, if you don't have any experience, that's okay. Uh, if you do have an experience, that's good. We need people to come out and to serve. People will be on site to show you what needs to be done. And so that's the first opportunity we have. The second project is to go down to uh, some schools in Durham. And what we're going to do is we're going to put a fresh coat of paint on some of those schools in the classroom as also in the hallways, do some cleaning in the schools, do some landscaping, and also some cataloging in the libraries. Now, in both these projects, we want to display the love of Christ. But not only do we want to display the love of Christ, we want to share the love of Christ. That is the true hope of Durham. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... What we're asking of you to do is to commit to that. Commit to serving. If you are able to serve, and you know today, I'm not doing anything on July 12th, which is a Saturday, from 7 to 12. We're going to ask you to sign up this morning. I'm going to be standing down front with Andy and also with Eric. We're also going to be doing some signing up on the next two Sundays. In the North Tower, there is a display that says Hope for Durham. There's some, card, there's some cards on your pew that say Hope for Durham. There will be a display outside, like I said, on the North Tower, and there is a one-minute and 44-second message. It just continually runs. You can go take a look at it. Tim Pyron, who's going to be one of our uh, project coordinators, is going to be standing outside. I'm looking forward to seeing you serve and to be used of God. We know the gospel. We know it pretty good. Some of the people in Durham don't know it. Let's come together like we come together in the health fair and reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand, and we're going to sing our closing song. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.